Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey, Will, welcome to the show. Thank you, Max. Glad um, to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Uh, I've seen a couple of your uh, sketches performed, and I've visited Highwire, and you're, you're a writer there. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm a sketch comedy writer. Sketch comedy writer. Do you perform a Highwire, too? So, actually, this week, uh, I don't know when this goes out, but this week I'm doing a show uh, on the 6th of July called, well, it's, it's a solo sketch performance show. So I will have okay. written, and I'll also be performing my own sketches. Well, very cool. Uh, we'll talk about Highwire a little later in the show. Uh, but to just jump in, this is a talking late night. Um, like I said, excited to have you. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, late night, late night comedy, late night sketches and hosts and um, how they've had an impact on you. And growing up, if you watched any, you know, what what stands out in your mind when I say late night? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I'm a bit of a classic comedy nerd, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when YouTube became a thing, if we're going to start chronologically, <laughs> uh, I, I sort of discovered Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. Okay. Which is the show that Carl Reiner got his start on, and Carl Reiner later went on to produce All in the Family. Mm -hmm. And so I would watch Sid Caesar because he was such a funny character actor. And I was doing a lot of children's theater, so I would just sort of research all these old comedians. And the idea of kind of the modern sitcom got started on Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. And Sid Caesar, if you haven't heard of Sid Caesar, is the coach in the movie Grease. Okay. The guy who's going to rid him and roll him around. And oh, that's, <laughs> that's actually Sid Caesar as a, an old guy. Uh, but he was, if you YouTube Sid Caesar, one of the funniest comedians uh, ever. And that was sort of arguably the beginning of late night as I know it. Mm -hmm. uh, then I would watch some of the Johnny Carson clips again, mostly on YouTube, I think, or I remember you'd be watching infomercials in, I guess the nineties and they'd be like, the Johnny collection, you know, and they would show funny clips of Johnny talking to people. And so I always enjoyed that and watching him interview Dean Martin and Don Rickles and, and then mostly just watching David Letterman with my dad. Mm -hmm. He had that real kind of dry sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And so I would watch Letterman with my dad. So I think it became kind of a bonding thing. My dad could always sort of talk to me and we'd talk about what we saw in Letterman last night or we'd watch it together because I was always, I mean, I, was, I don't remember when bedtime was. Right. But I could like just watch usually the monologue and then by the time the interviews came, my dad would be like, son, go to bed. <laughs> so wow. that's kind of was like my intro to late night. So it's a, you're a very classic guy. Like all, all your beginnings in comedy are with very classic older people. Yeah, man. I've always kind of been an old soul, I guess, in that way. But I loved Elvis when I was growing up because mm -hmm. he had cool hair. I loved Danny Zuko or like John Travolta in Greece. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that, that era I was sort of fascinated with. And then I started learning about the comedians. And then my grandfather has, I still have it, uh, the Dean Martin variety show. DVD set. And so it's Dean Martin interviewing, um, like Bob Newhart comes on that show and so many wonderful classic comedians that kind of got their start uh, around that time. And so, yeah, that was really influential. I feel like I guess I'm kind of old school in that way for somebody that's mm -hmm. my age. Yeah, well, that's super cool. You know, I think about how you're saying, you know, as a kid, you were watching Sid Caesar and Johnny Carson and all, and all those things, you know, what was that like as a kid when you go to school? And you're like, guys, you know, on David Letterman last night, it was the funniest. And everyone's like, uh, we don't really watch David Letterman. That's funny, man. You know, I think rather than 
referencing what I'd seen on those shows, I would sort of try to be like those guys. Okay. And the first, one of the first comedic things I ever did. So now that I'm into comedy, I'm like less of a Leno guy, Mm -hmm. I guess. Because I don't know. He's funny. He's (laughs) made a career. He drives cars, whatever. He has a big chin. (laughs) But the fact that he had a big chin... I think as a kid, I just thought was hilarious. And so I did like a book report or something in an elementary school and I wore a blazer and I was like, this has been Jay Leno, the big chin boy, which if you're in second grade, kills with an audience. <laughs> so yeah, I think they were just so personal and so kind of Mr. Life of the party that, that I tried to kind of emulate that. Mm-hmm. And I was like a little fat and <laughs> probably not cool in a lot of ways because like my parents I don't know I, I I didn't have all the fancy clothes I didn't have so I think comedy or being personable or being the life of the party was kind of how I would relate to people mm-hmm. you know so and these guys were kind of my icons in a way I mean because they could they were I think like a lot of these late night guys I mean Colbert is kind of good looking but they're not like the best looking people Do you know what I mean mm-hmm. they're like yeah, a little yeah. bitter they're snarky and so yet here they were making people laugh mm-hmm. and they were cool to me Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's funny because when I look back now because I wasn't I wasn't like really into that or I loved comedy but I wasn't I hadn't decided I was going to devote my life to this at that point mm-hmm. but it kind of makes sense that I was fascinated by these guys and the way they behaved and I tried to emulate that in my behavior so when you watch these shows you know I'm not familiar with Sid Caesar enough um, but I think it's super cool that you are and definitely I want to I'm going to look into that and learn about him man he, his writers let me tell you who Sid Caesar's writers were Mel Brooks, uh, Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon, right? Sitting in a room wow. with and Carl Reiner. It's like the all star team. That's what I'm saying, together. man. <laughs> oh, man. If you think of, oh, Woody oh, Allen. Oh, Woody Allen was God. in that room. I know. Imagine sitting in that writer's that room. It's insane. Oh, man. It's insane. So that's, what, so, okay. Yeah. That's what led. So I love Mel Brooks, right? Right. So that's what led me to, like, well, how'd these guys get their start? They all worked in the Sid Caesar's writing room. Mm-hmm. Writer's room. The play Laughter on the 23rd Floor is based on that writer's room. Wow. And uh, I think it's called, is he called King Kaiser? He might be, no. So here's another reason I know about this. So there's a musical called My Favorite Year. Okay. Which is based on the Sid Caesar where they make this variety show. And so it's sort of early Saturday Night Live, basically. Mm -hmm. But I think it was an hour and a half live show. And so Neil Simon, who wrote Laughter on the 23rd Floor, a very funny playwright, um, I got to do that show and play Sid Caesar's character. So that's when I started researching it. And then I was also consequently oh it's weird i didn't think about this until right now uh i was i later did my favorite year which was the musical that was based on sid caesar mm-hmm. and being in that writer's room so i just i mean those imagine those funny people all sitting together i, I mean it's like i don't know i would love to have been a fly on the wall you yeah know? yeah I, no i it's like what i said before that's like an all-star group like you have the best of the best sitting all together i mean I can't even, they must have had so many good ideas that I want to know which ideas were thrown away. Yeah, right. You know, right? Like, which ideas didn't get picked. <laughs> where's the vault or where's the stuff like, oh, we'll never get this on TV, right? Right, right. Yeah, 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 I yeah. want to know. Wow. So when, when you were a kid and even a teenager, maybe young adult, and you're watching Sid Caesar and Johnny Carson, David Letterman, like you said, what did you watch for? What, what drew you to it? Well, I mean, they were making a lot of commentary always. Mm. I think a lot of political commentary. So, uh, you know, and I didn't really watch The Daily Show at that age. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I mean, my parents were always very aware politically. And, and um, you know, we, I don't know. I, I remember when I, I had to learn that 
people thought it was weird to be gay. Mm-hmm. You know, like I grew up in a very just like a liberal accepting household. And so, so yeah, I think, I think these guys could sort of talk about that. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I also think that you um, maybe don't get to have those conversations, right? I mean, I, I teach right now, I teach improv to some high school kids and they're very political and I have to kind of ignore some of the things they say or just not endorse any point of view necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of, the educational system is like that. So where else as a kid can you feel like an adult and talk politics and be able to talk to your dad about the political climate through a joke that Le- that that Letterman made? Right. So I, I'll, I wonder if there's something to, to it where, you know, as a kid, you can watch these guys and feel like you're part of the adult conversation. Mm-hmm. And because it's through comedy, it's sort of acceptable. Because like, I don't know, CNN is boring. I still think CNN is boring. Uh-huh. You know, but but as a late night, it, it may, I mean, you could argue that it brings people together uh, of different age groups. And, and you, and also I think you and your family can laugh about something that's topical mm-hmm. and yeah. do it together. So there's probably a family element to it. Yeah. It, it's, I, I agree with what you said, you know, where like you watch CNN and it's boring and you watch Fox News and it's boring or MSNBC. It, it's just, you know, the people say this week and blah, blah, blah. But then you get, you know, you have Jimmy Kimmel stand up there and he's like, well, this week this happened. And then you're like, I did not know that. And then it, you, like you learn. But at the same time, there's a joke in it, too. Right. So it helps you remember it. And then you feel if it's funny enough, you're like, hey, let me share this information with others. So in a way, you could argue that a lot of people, especially younger people today who don't want to watch the news, the boring news, are turning to these late night shows to learn what's happening in the world through a comedic lens. Well, I got to be honest with you. I mean, since the election, I don't really, I mean, I read The New Yorker, but that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if something big happens, I'll look up the New York Times, but I get all my news mostly from the comedy shows now mm-hmm. because it's somehow easier to swallow from, you know, Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live or mm-hmm. I used to watch Colbert and now I watch, I'll watch him on YouTube on, mm-hmm. you know, from his, his, his show now, The Tonight Show. I don't know. I can't even listen to NPR anymore. I just get sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, it's easier to swallow. And I, I still like Bill Maher. I know he's been in the news a lot lately, but he he says, I think, you know, I like his point of view and I like like kind of the directness of of some of the things he says. So, yeah, I agree, man. I think, uh, I mean, that's why John Oliver was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. Guy's yeah. a rock star, man. People are turning. People are turning to the comedy to find out the news. Well, they do such a good job of synthesizing it, right? I think, was it, I don't know if it's Colbert, uh, John Stewart that said they have the moles in the basement that just <laughs> click around on the computers all day. They watch the news for me and share the important bits. It's kind of, it's synthesized. I don't know. I mean, I, well, then also, it was a Colbert, I think, said after the election that the news, did you see, do you know which bit I'm referencing? It was like Colbert's bit right after the election. Mm-mm. Well, I know there's been a lot with Colbert. That's true. It was, the, I think it was the day after the election. And he said, you know, I think we just need a break from politics. You know, politics used to be something that you'd sit down and maybe, maybe talk for an hour about twice a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But with these 24 hour news cycles now, it's just constant. Uh, and, and he was sort of like, we don't have to always obsess about this sort of thing. Uh, and, and I've, I've kind of taken that to heart and I'm so much happier. I don't feel less aware, but I don't know. It just, it's, it, it's, you can watch it. You can feel informed. You can stay abreast to what's going on, but then, still enjoy your life. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, I don't know. Can we get political here? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, who cares? All we right, talk I mean, about whatever we want. Great, I love this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Podcasts are great for that. Uh, I I was kind of devastated at first after the election. Like, how could this happen? You know, and then I had I sort of realized, well, I don't I don't need to let that influence my life. You know, um, and and then people like Colbert who get up on a national stage and say, "Hey, it's all going to be all right." That's that's so important. Mm. So you you know, I mean that that's so important, man. So, so let me, let me tell you about this. I was reading an article, um, featuring Norm Macdonald just a couple weeks ago. And Norm Macdonald said he was talking about, um, politics in comedy. And he commented that comedians should be moving away from focusing on Trump and focusing more on other issues as well. He said it was getting too Trump absorbed and Trump, you know, targeting just him. And, for me, sometimes when you watch these either late night monologues or like you were saying, John Oliver, or Stephen Colbert, whoever, the entire thing will just be about it'll be Trump, 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 end of show. So in one way, I, I think it's important to comment on what's happening. Definitely. Um, and to get your news, like we were saying. But on the other hand, I think we should also be looking at other issues. Do you agree with that? How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we if you talk to anyone else at Highwire Comedy, where I teach here in Atlanta, and you should take classes, <laughs> that you know they do a show weekly called Good Evening Tonight, which you came to see. Yep, yeah, I've seen it. Twice. And yeah, okay, and that's their political show, and you know they learned pretty quickly that a Trump joke sucks the air out of the room because a lot of people are tired of it. So on some level, I do think it's important if there's news. And, you know, for example, Weekend Update is a news parody show. Exactly. But what I love about John Oliver is that, you know, he he points you in a different direction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's tough to say. I, I think you could get into the semantics of an, the, the sort of responsibility of a comedian, right? Well, the responsibility of a comedian is to make people laugh. Right. You know, <laughs> that's the goal. So, yeah, I think if, if you know, if, if you do political satire, I think there's some issues you cannot ignore, mm -hmm. but I also think, yeah, I think it's important to look around and not be so focused. Though I got to tell you, on the other hand, uh, it's funny, I'm going back and forth. <laughs> He's such an easy target mm -hmm. and there's right. just so right. much to say. Right. I don't know, man. It's hard to say. Like, I mean, I love Norm MacDonald. I think he's hilarious. But mm -hmm. then also part of me goes, well, write what you want to write mm -hmm. if you're a comedian, you know? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think I agree. You know, on one hand, you know, I could just not watch the show. You know, like you said, it's a comedian show. They can talk about whatever they want. If it's John Oliver, the show is called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. So he can talk about whatever he wants. But on the other hand, like personally, when John Oliver first started, I watched every single week. Me and my dad loved it. I thought he was the most creative and funny guy, cracked me up. And then once the election started, or well you know, the process to the election, it started becoming a little bit more just Trump related, but it wasn't completely. It was like, you know, 15, 20%. And now I just, I can't watch it anymore because it's just the same joke to me over and over and over again. And I'm fine. Like you said, there's plenty of material to make fun of. Plenty. I mean, it's almost every day. It's almost daily. You could find a joke from something he does. But I think it's time to maybe always, like you said, include a joke here and there, like Weekend Update. It is the week, you know, review. But I think we, there are hundreds of things that happen in a day, thousands of things that happen in a day. You can find anything to talk about. So I wish it would be more focused on that and less 
you know, jokes that suck the air out of the room, like how you were saying. With yeah, Highwire. well, and part of what was fun about that show is, you know, I loved learning about FIFA and... Right, you know... Was it, where are the dancing zebras? Right, uh, yep, yep. You or, know, or talking about, you know, uh, lab- or health labels on cigarettes. Oh, that, that was, was great. a thing. Yeah, or, um, or even on produce, right, where you could stick. <laughs> right, uh, right. They did on produce. They did um, stuff on Olympic stadiums. Like, that is stuff that is quality stories and information that... You don't see that every day in the news. You know, they're not talking about the stadiums, uh, the Olympic stadiums that are rotting in, in places like Greece and Brazil. But he used to cover that. Like, that used to be the focal point is bringing attention to these issues that we aren't really aware of. Well, and, and arguably, uh, I haven't been as consistent either uh, mm-hmm. with John Oliver. And I, I mean, I have access. To, I have HBO, so I, I, <laughs> I should probably catch up. I don't know. You know, though, it's funny you say that because I think part of the reason with that show is it's so truthful that that might be why I don't watch is because ah, it's funny, man, because, you know, you, when you write comedy, I think when you're in any creative art, you have to. It helps me to be in a good place emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that's hard sometimes because you got to pay bills. You've got to, you know, deal with life. You got to deal with politics. And and when there's so much negativity and so much kind of uncertainty and the healthcare law and all these things coming out, it. it Sometimes the last thing you want to do is sit down on the page and be funny, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm writing this sketch or I'm, I've got to finish up this week and it's like the dumbest premise. It's <laughs> so stupid. And, but I mean, it's such a good time and, and it's not, um, it's not political in any, well, it's t- typically generally not political in any way. And it, it, it's funny because if it, I think if I don't lift myself up and do things that are nice for myself and, and be positive and try to, you know, have some sort of stability uh, emotionally and be in a good place then it's really hard to sit down and write jokes mm-hmm. and so that might be part of why i haven't watched that show in particular because yeah they're because it's funny with john oliver i always i, I laugh i learn something and then i want to cry <laughs> you know uh-huh yep god the world's such a fucked up place right. so yeah. so and i think lily feels the same way and i mean i, I don't want to say that we're you know we, we still try to be aware of the world but also, I think it's really important just to keep my head up because mm-hmm. because it it it's such a tremulous kind of media mm-hmm. uh, world right now, and that's why I don't listen to NPR anymore. <laughs> well, well, you make a good point. You know, comedians are there to make us laugh and to make us smile. They've been throughout history. You know, there's always been. You go back to caveman times, and when the dinosaur ate the one guy, there was always the one maybe fat caveman who would fall down and get everyone to laugh. You know, there's always the you need that. You you really right. do. You always need those people. Comedians right. are critical. That's critical. True. Whether they're on late night, stand up, improv, a- anywhere. Maybe not professional. Anybody. I Although critical. There's the other side of it where you know some of the funniest stuff I've ever written has been because of something traumatic I was going through. So interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's a catch twenty two. But I guess yeah. I guess when you're writing sketch in particular, sometimes it tends to be over the top and silly and ridiculous, and so. You, you, it's fun to go and show up on the page in a way that, that you're going to play mm-hmm. and you're going to enjoy it mm-hmm. and you're going to say silly things, you know? Uh, yeah, but then I guess, I, I, I mean, I, I had a breakup once and I wrote this solo sketch and it killed on stage, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was all about failed relationships. And one of my favorite jokes from that uh, bit, I used to do this cranky cabaret in New York and the whole premise was people are just pissed off about stuff, <laughs> you know, getting up on stage and... Uh, I would write these song parodies about bad relationships. And one of them was, uh, I was, I went down on my girlfriend for the first time 
And when I looked up, she was texting. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine, you know? Uh, Anyways. So, yeah. I I forgot what we were talking about. (laughs) Well, we started talking about late night. It just, it went. But that's, I hey, that's why I like this. You know, we just have a natural conversation. we, We see where it takes us. But you were talking about, you know, writing sketches because that is what you do now. You are a writer. Uh, for High Wire and also kind of for yourself a bit. So why don't you talk about what it's like to be a sketch writer at High Wire and, and tell people who are listening who don't really know what High Wire is or what they do. Right. So High Wire is a comedy theater in Atlanta. And, you know, it's a, it's a fun place because they're relatively new to the scene where, you know, you can still uh, go through the program and get stage time. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of opportunities there. Uh, there's going to be auditions for sketch teams coming up, I think, in August. So you can look out for that. There's a couple of video teams, actually, that are looking for actors and writers now. So it's it's a really kind of avant-garde place where it's funny because, you know, you become a, an institution like UCB or the Magnet or Groundlings and, you know, the, the, the people who've come through your program and gained and garnered success almost force the theater itself to become institutionalized on some level. Um, and I think that it then becomes difficult to get stage time because the word's out and everybody wants to come there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, where part of learning to be good at this, in addition to learning and taking classes, which are so valuable, uh, is actually getting to do the work and putting up material and getting in front of an audience and become a person on a house team, whatever. And, you know, if you're at a more established institution, I mean, I was, I studied at UCB theater in New York. That's where I kind of started officially getting into comedy. I took their improv and sketch classes. There was a 10-year waiting list to get on stage, mm-hmm. you know, just because they've had so many great people go through that program. And so not that it wouldn't have happened for me eventually there, but I, I didn't want to wait 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Atlanta and High Wire's a little new. So it's, it's very cool. It's edgy. It's avant-garde. Uh, they do a lot of really fun shows and it's a really a great community to belong to. Mm-hmm. So I think if you want to do comedy, uh, belonging to an institution like that is a good way to go. Because you meet people, you have um, kind of connections, and you lift each other up. It's collaborative. And comedy more so even than theater, I think, is uh, collaborative in terms of the performers and the writers really working together. Mm-hmm. I think most playwrights are solo, you know? Even yeah, Tarantino yeah. talks about the way he writes, you know? Uh, even screenwriters to some extent. But sketch, um, comedy writing, you know, you sit in the writer's room. And you may come in with a great premise, but then you have 10 comedians throwing good ideas at you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's what I do now is I write and direct uh, sketch comedy there. I teach level one, which is the beginning class. And then I also teach the advanced class, which culminates in a live performance. So I help uh, kind of get the sketches ready. And then I get the second half of the class. I get to work with the actors and kind of put it together from start to finish. And we create original sketch comedy shows. That's very cool. That's very So you moved from... New York City to Atlanta. I did. I moved about a year ago, February. Yeah. So what? Tell me about that. How uh, the that transition? Because obviously, going from New York to Atlanta, it's different. They're two very different cities. Yeah. I mean, I think New York. I moved to New York when I was doing musical theater, and I thought I wanted to be on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Then I don't know, man. I you know, let's see. I mean, that's sort of, so, I mean, I was always kind of like a writer and I was always a little funny on stage. I would do these like characters in plays and musicals, but then I I did The Artist Way, Mm -hmm. which is a great book that I don't know if you've heard of, uh, but it's a creative recovery program for artists because I was going on auditions all the time and I was just miserable. Mm 
mm-hmm. you know, I hate auditioning. <laughs> oh God, you got to get up and get dressed, <laughs> like comb your hair and put shit in your hair and ride the train. And then if it's hot, you're sweaty. And then if it's cold, you're cold and you don't want to get there too early because there's not like waiting areas in New York. And, you know, like in Atlanta, L.A., even you can sit in your car. Right. You don't you are your car. <laughs> right. You know, and then like I had a bike and I never fucking could get my bike to tie up in the right. You know, I was always afraid it'd get stolen. And that was always the thing. So anyways, you go to auditions and uh, I the, the year I decided not to quit acting because I'm still an actor, but that I that I wanted to go a different direction was. It was the 100-year anniversary of World War One, which was, I guess, what, 2012, maybe? 2013? And I auditioned for 10 plays that year. And they were all these World War One plays because I was young. I looked like a GI, I guess. I had a short haircut at that time. And, and I just was so miserable. There were these monologues. just like, yes, running in the trenches, <laughs> the smell of the latrine, watching my comrades die and bad like just the most heart-wrenching <laughs> right. monologues you know and right. i write oh, to my man. wife back home and it's uh, so sad and i want to do that i was like what am i doing i'm i'm silly i'm you know right so i said i don't do this anymore and uh then i said well what am i gonna do i'm in new york so i took an improv class and that was kind of so then i realized okay improv's great but i really think i heard someone say this recently this is bold uh can I say who said it? Yeah, I guess I can say who said it. Sarah Gar is like a wonderful, very pregnant sketch comedian <laughs> in Atlanta who you should interview because she's amazing. She said improv is a training tool, not an art form. That's, mm, that's going to be like controversial probably. It is an art form and improv can be very entertaining. But in terms of turning comedy into a career, no one ever makes it doing improv. You do improv and then you go do a movie. You do improv and then you start writing for yourself. Interesting. So, right. You're a young guy. I love that you're doing this because, God, I wish someone had said that to me like five years ago, you know? <laughs> then again, I figured it out pretty quickly where I was like, okay, well, what do you do now? You have a team. You get on stage. You're still just making shit up, you know, which is great. But that's all writing is to me as I'm improvising on the page, except sketch writers get to revise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) But yeah, so improv is a training tool, I think. Uh, But I started doing improv and then I was like, oh, I guess I'm kind of funny. And then um, I was was writing original sketch with my guitar. And I have this character called Sad Man that I do. uh, Who's just, it's all just, it's kind of a heightened version of me when I'm feeling depressed. And so there was one about relationships. There was one about all the times I've been fired. Uh, I've been fired a lot. Like a lot, a lot? Like, like. The average person, I'm assuming, gets fired maybe like two to three times in their life. More than that? Oh, many more times than that. Wow. Many more times than <laughs> well, that. Like double digits? Double digits firing? Probably. I mean, I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. Wow. <laughs> well, I think I used to have a problem with authority. <laughs> okay. But but I think the managers... I, look, when you're, when you're a creative <laughs> artist, now I'm justifying it. <laughs> you're... Um, you're, it's always about the art. Right. So the job is just what you have to do so you can go to your next audition or mm. get or pay for your next UCB mm. class. Uh, I, like I got an audition once for um, Universal in Japan and I was Austin Powers. So I did like that was, you know, sort of dialect thing and I went in and did it. And then I was also Dr. Evil and I put the, the stupid thing together. And they, they were going to hire me. Well, they called me back for a callback. And I didn't go to my restaurant job to open brunch because fucking wine, of course, yeah. you know. Well, I got fired. It was this, like old Turkish guy. I don't regret living in New York. It's miserable, but I don't regret it. And he's like, I don't think it's working to continue working with you working here. And I remember like, I 
think I just got fired. <laughs> but I wasn't sure. Right. You emailed too much. You know, um, and so because I was always requesting days off for shows and whatever. <laughs> right. Every uh, job. So that's part of it. It's just that every job has always been second fiddle. And, and then I like told off this manager at Ruby Tuesdays in college, the Cheesecake Factory. I've had a lot of weird jobs. <laughs> man. But anyways, so yeah, I, I got out of that. I was doing comedy. Uh, doing sketch. And then and New York was expensive. I no longer had a real reason to be there. Uh, I couldn't be creative as much because I was spending so much time worrying about rent and food and the freaking subway. And so, yeah, I moved to Atlanta because I wanted a better life and I wanted to still be creative. That's that's awesome. I, I just, I think the highlight of that story for me was Universal Japan. Yeah. That is like, I didn't even know that Japan had a Universal. Yeah, they have one in Osaka and they hire uh, street performers to like do comedy there. Did you ever visit? So I worked for Tokyo Disney. So you went to Tokyo? Yeah, I actually was in Tokyo for the biggest earthquake in the history of... Wait, like like the... The Fukushima one. You were there? I was there. Okay. You gotta gotta tell me what that was like. God, man, it was nuts. Uh, So I'd only been there two weeks. I was living in Orlando at the time because before New York, I did Disney and I was uh, friends with a certain scurvy pirate which you probably heard about. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah. And so I was working for Nickelodeon uh, as a host for Slime Time Live. Oh, cool. Yeah, because when I graduated college, I didn't want to go to New York right away because I didn't, just didn't feel like the right time. The economy was awful. Shows and theaters were closing. Or It was right when the recession hit, which is, I guess, 2009, which was, was when I, you know, graduated. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, great, I'm going to be an actor. And then there was no jobs anywhere. Oh, so I moved to Orlando because Disney World wasn't going to close. It's true. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So I got work true. there. And then um, I auditioned for Tokyo Disney. And it was the ballet training that I had in college that got me that job. Because there was this like very old, very skinny ballet man. And I, the way I had my arms out, and I just could see him be like, mm, very good, very good. <laughs> so they hired me to be Captain Jack. Friends with Captain Jack. <laughs> You're not allowed to say it. I think I signed my life in blood once, but I wouldn't admit <laughs> to anybody that I would. <laughs> Right, you uh, were just a friend. It was a friend of Captain Jack Sparrow, the pirate from... Di- yeah, it was just yeah. friends. Um, and uh, and then I was also going to be Aladdin, and I was going to do all sorts of stuff for them. Mm-hmm. So I get there, I move into an apartment. The Japanese are very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had my own place. It was great. I was going to make all this money. I was going to be gone for a year. Wow. It was a 13-month contract. And then two and a half, three weeks into it, the biggest earthquake in the history of Japan Oh my God! <laughs> happened. So we're on the second floor of this building uh, backstage. At- oh, so you were at the park. Yeah, I was at the park when it happened. And we were learning the bunny hop choreography for the Easter parade. (laughs) Which, even in that moment, I I was there to be Captain Jack. I don't know what show I was in where there was going to be this. Oh, it was so embarrassing. It was like hopping. It was awful. (laughs) Thank you, Earthquake. I never had to fucking bunny hop, you know? Uh, So we're hopping, and then we're hopping, and then it starts like shaking a little. I was like, "Mm, boy, maybe I should lose some weight. You know, it's like, you just imagine like, well, the building's a little, but then it gets worse and worse and yeah at first the japanese handler i guess mm-hmm. uh was like oh everyone just sit down like it's an earthquake and then all of a sudden you watched his face change from a smile from oh look at these silly americans having their first earthquake because like you know it, earthquakes are common in japan right. to oh oh no oh no oh no get go out, get out of the building oh, get out of the building and we went down the stairs and that was when it was the worst and i, I swear to god i'm going down the stairs i'm shaking the room i i can't i can't really describe it i guess it was like being on a roller coaster because the whole world's moving. You don't know what's up and down, right? And so I'm grabbing onto the, the railing and I'm, I'm thinking of my ballet training. <laughs> I think because I, the, like the, the uh, tendency was to fall 
because uh-huh. we're going down fucking stairs, you know? Right. So I was just thinking, stay lifted and you'll make it out. And I stayed lifted. We get out of the building and I'm, I'm holding onto a chain link fence, just blowing, blowing, shaking, right? Just trying to not flail. We get down to the floor, concrete's cracking all around us. Uh, and we spent, okay, so then this is funny. Whenever there's a big earthquake, it does something to the atmosphere. I'm not a scientist. Where it <laughs> rains. What? Yeah, like clouds. I don't know. You have to check up. I would love for you to like, kind of be like, I looked up in Wikipedia what Will was talking about, and it's a real thing. Uh, it, the atmosphere, something to do with the atmosphere, it, cause it often after a big earthquake, it'll cloud up and rain. Then the wind's blowing, so it feels like an apocalypse <laughs> moment, you know? Right. So I'm there, and it's raining, and, but like none of the buildings are cleared, and then eventually we, we were able to go inside. Well, there's 50,000 people in the park as this happens, and Disney Sea is, so there's two parks there, Disneyland, which is like the Magic Kingdom or Disneyland in California, and then there's Disney Sea, which doesn't exist anywhere else. The whole park is water-themed, and so there's all these bridges which, oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that some of just, them have collapsed oh. and it's insane. So, I mean, I guess like, this could go on forever, but long story short, so we eventually get back to our apartment building, which was cleared. Mm-hmm. And we were living on reclaimed land, which is where they dump a bunch of shit in the ocean and build on top of it, mm-hmm. which is not as solid as just land. Right. Right. That's Udayasu was the name of our kind of our area. And in Udayasu, uh, there was no water and we did have power. So you're sponge bathing, bathing out of with these like emergency water bags just oh. to keep yourself clean. And we didn't have power the first day. Eventually we got power. So the, that night, and oh my gosh, is it here? Okay, you can see right here on the shelf, there's a tiny oh. dancing bear. Oh, the, the bear. And he's got Japanese writing on him, right? This is, we're in my apartment. This is, so I go to the, the, not the Home Depot, whatever the Japanese Home Depot is to get a flashlight because the power's out. Okay. Don't, don't. Don't tell me. Sold out. Completely. <laughs> the only light source that they have available is this stupid color-changing <laughs> dancing bear. So that <laughs> night in my apartment, you look and there's all these sort of like candles in the windows and things. And I'm looking like I have a disco party because <laughs> of this right. fucking color-changing <laughs> bear. Yeah, man. Oh, I love that this is still here for this story. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah. So it was crazy. Uh, long story short, then the radiation gets bad. There was like mud and then it dries and there was wind and everyone's wearing these like surgical masks it's like an apocalyptic movie yeah it was horrible and i got evacuated Uh, i got a delta flight we were evacuated because the radiation was which is scary because it's invisible Uh uh-huh right and yeah my dad got me on a delta flight actually and the company paid for it i mean disney evacuated all the performers Mm -hmm. and then a month later they tried to get us to come back but things were uncertain so i came back i had no job i had no money i had i didn't know what i was going to do right i mean you had committed like this was totally, and it had only been two weeks. Two, I'd given up my apartment. I I had nowhere to live. It'd been fourteen days. It sucked, man. It that sucked. is horrible. I mean, granted, that's a great story. That is a story <laughs> you could have. I don't even know how many sketches you could write from that. That's so it's true. Just like mm-hmm. that is like a ooh, that is I a survived. gold mine in there. But that is that's that's scary. It was tough. Like, that man. is terrible. I can't even imagine that. I mean, it's hard to even picture an earthquake. You've never been in one. But that was your, I'm assuming that was your first earthquake. Well, I mean, I grew up in California for a minute, so I remember okay. a couple, but nothing ever this extreme. Yeah, this so was. For all intents and purposes, it was my first. So have you ever been back to Japan since? No. Uh, I, I had auditioned for that Osaka job, which mm-hmm. um, I think I got another contract and didn't do it, is what happened with that. I don't remember why I didn't take that job in, in Osaka. But yeah, I was I was willing to go back. I loved Japan. 
the mm. people were so kind and I actually loved the idea of playing Austin Powers and Dr. Evil because I think I would have had to do some like song and dance stuff at Disney, which I wouldn't have had, to, which nice. I love musical theater. Don't get me wrong. But my strength even then, I'm realizing, was comedy and improv. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be Dr. Evil every day. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's amazing. That's pretty awesome. Or even Austin Powers, who's just so kind of overly sexual. That would have been right. amazing. Right. And I mean, they worship the American uh, performers. Oh, Japan. they do? Oh, yeah. I mean, we'd be walking from the train to the park just to go to rehearsal, and people are coming up taking pictures with you. And Oh, wow. You're, so you're, you're like a little celebrity. Definitely. It was cool. Wow. And yeah. so you also worked down at Disney, regular Disney in Orlando. Yeah, I had an equity contract as uh, some some pirate. Right, some guy. That unnamed. shall go unnamed. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a comedy show. It was me and Mac, who's kind of his, like, he's not in the movie Mac, but uh, Pirate Companion. And mm-hmm. It's called Jack Sparrow's Pirate Tutorial. Wow. So does working, because I know you visit Disney as like a kid and even as an adult, and it's just a place like no other. I went, I was in 11th grade, so like two years ago I went, and I was like, well, I don't know how amusing this is going to be for me. And I went and I was like, this is clearly a lot better than any other amusement park because of the experience, you know, like everything for me felt like an experience. Yeah, Yeah. What's it like working it? Oh man, that's tough. I, you know, I like Disney, and I, 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 I liked working there. Um, but it is a machine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big corporate machine. Most people, I think, didn't have it as good as I did because I had my own dressing room. I had creative costuming who makes custom costume for me, and I had the best makeup. And I mean, they even they go so far as to to match the the beard to my hair color. Wow. Yeah. They go I mean, it just shows to yeah. show they go all out. Well, and there's the so experience. there's character performers that do the meet and greet and then there's the kind of equity performers who are more it's more performative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you you know, you're really treated well. Mm-hmm. Uh now that being said, I had one of the most difficult shows on property because you know, in the afternoon, excuse me, we were in the direct sun. Mm-hmm. That wig is hotter than hell. <laughs> Uh, and you know, you do six shows a day and that's exhausting, man. I mean, I'd finish six shows and I was dead because you try to bring everything, right? I mean, right. you want to give a hundred percent. Yeah. And I was always aware of how much people were paying to be there, you mm-hmm. know? And so I always really tried to give as much as I could, but yeah, it got old. I mean, the show got old, you know, <laughs> I, overall management was good. The rehearsals were good. You know, I mean, you, you show up for five minutes, you get a four hour call cause that was union r- rules. So even if you just come in for a fitting, you know, you still get. Uh, paid pretty well um, and it was enough to make a living um, but yeah I don't know I don't think I would do it again I think if I work for Disney I would want to do it in maybe more of a writing capacity mm-hmm. where I could sort of direct or maybe develop new shows um, because yeah it just it got old I mean, you, do, you literally do the same show now cool thing about our show though is I would invite the kids on stage and teach them to sword fight oh that is cool three of them and uh, that was always fun because you never knew that was improv right Right. right. And that was when I would shine. So it's funny. I was always known for kind of blazing through the beginning because mm-hmm. it's all just like, put your hand up high. Oh, I put them down. Oh, I put them left hand. Oh, put them down. You know, it's kind of like, it's right. stuff everything can do. <laughs> and somehow they tie it into pirate. But the f- fun part was just like, you know, now I need a volunteer. And that was really, right. really fun. Because you don't know what the kid's going to do. You don't know what they're going to say. And then it's like, then, like you said, you know, that's when the improv component came, right. by, uh, and, came from. And when you can, infuse improv in a show like that people feel like they're a part of it you know it's like oh that probably doesn't normally happen oh cool (laughs) right so so that's a unique job um i i 
would say most people have not had that experience that you've had. Um, but what's your dream job? Ooh, what's the what's the dream job in your opinion? That's a great question, man. I mean, right now, so I'm writing. Well, it's funny you say that. So I always wanted to be a sketch writing teacher. Yeah, because <laughs> well, I would check. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm good. Uh, well, let's see. I want to live long enough to uh, to, to transfer from, uh, you know, what do I want to do with my life to, oh, God, I've squandered it. Mm-hmm. If I live that long. No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, that's a heavy joke. Uh, <laughs> it's fun. Well, so I took, when I was taking classes at UCB, I just thought my sketch teachers were so smart and so funny. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I'd love to teach sketch comedy uh, at UCB at the time. And then I moved to Atlanta and like pretty quickly, uh, after about a year and a half, they made me a sketch teacher. And I was like, wow, awesome. So I love doing it. Uh, I love teaching those classes. So at this point, uh, yeah, I think I want to, I'd love to be a TV writer. Um, and, and write on a, maybe a show, a comedy show, or, you know, kind of sell and produce my own. So we've written a pilot. Uh, Very cool. Yeah. I wrote my first pilot this year. Congrats. Congrats. Thanks, man. That's a pretty big deal. Appreciate it. Yeah. It's a lot of work, man. I mean, this thing from the treatment, you know, which is sort of a breakdown of the characters, um, to the, the, so we shot a sizzle reel and then to the pilot, it's been a, about a six to eight month process. And, uh, yeah, I actually met today with the guy we've got a pilot. So yeah, I think to either produce this or write a few more uh, and to get a job as a TV writer and just get to like live in the writer's room uh, making a living would, would be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what I, what I'd want to do. I'm still kind of learning what that world looks like. Um, But yeah, man, just to be able to write and be creative and then not have to, uh, I guess just not have to do anything else besides be creative really. Because mm-hmm. I never wanted to be famous or even rich, uh, you know. I, I like, you know, you're in my apartment. It's nothing fancy, <laughs> but what we don't want for anything. But it's, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But just to make a living in comedy and not have to, I guess, worry about like, oh, I need to go have this job so that I can then do my comedy. But to get paid uh, as a comedian, but sketch teaching, teaching sketch feels like doing that in a way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. At, at this point, that's what I want to do. So, where do you see yourself going? Five years and now, it's like where, where do you therapy, man. Gosh, uh, <laughs> wow. Well, like I say, to be in the writers' room, so to get a job on a, a show that I thought was really funny and felt like I could add to would be great. So mm-hmm. to be a like paid, uh, paid well as a comedy writer on a, a series, a sitcom would be cool. Mm-hmm. Whether it be a Netflix show or something for Amazon, or that would probably be pretty close to the dream. Um, I think that might take me out of Atlanta that happened to uh, to like la or new york probably yeah so there is a development studio in atlanta um, okay but they're only kind of the only game in town so most shows currently are still written in new york or la mm-hmm. now if you're a screenwriter you kind of write it and then hope it sells right uh but a tv writer you know you have to be there and you develop it and you have rewrites and whatnot so yeah i think that would kind of be uh, the ideal, or I could even imagine if I were above average is Lauren Michaels mm-hmm. online sort of uh, funny or die basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they hire people that sort of write and create original content for them. So a job like that, where I was paid to kind of write and produce my own stuff uh, would be cool. Yeah. So in five years, I think I'd like to be, to be doing that and just be a better writer. Man. I, it's so funny. You go in this, the creative process where you'll write something like, I don't think this is funny. 
is this funny? And then I'll read it to my girlfriend. I'll share it with a couple of friends and they laugh. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess this is funny. You know, mm-hmm. I constantly question the, you always, I always question myself, like, am I funny? You know, but yeah, I guess a little. <laughs> They, they I let think me, you're funny. Uh, thanks, hey, man. You got, <laughs> it's me. You got one. Great. Yeah. Great. I'll take it, man. I'll take it. So, yeah, to, to be working in comedy, have a career in comedy, and maybe buy a boat. Any particular type of boat? No. Just a boat. One, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it should. I don't want a remote control boat. Or like a canoe. Uh, maybe, a, yeah, you know what? A good kayak. I'd self-propulsion. Uh, uh, I ride my bike everywhere. I'd be into okay. that. Okay, so you would be okay with a canoe, <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> God, I could do that tomorrow. You know, some life coach boat. once was like, live the life you want to live now. Don't wait. I want a boat. I want a boat. Go buy a boat. Motherfucker. <laughs> so um, I like to end my show with a, a last culminating question. And that question is for someone who is aspiring to be in comedy or the entertainment business or to be a writer like you are, a sketch writer, or, or maybe even to work at Disney. Who knows? What is a piece of advice you would give them? Something that you've learned over your years that you would tell somebody? Ooh, that's a good question. Someone that wants to get into the entertainment business. Well, I would say, wow, that's tough. Uh, I mean, there's a million things that come to mind. But I think if you want to do this, find an organization or find some people that are doing what you want to do. And find an excuse to be around them. Because people like to work with their friends. And people like to work together and collaboratively. And, you know, I mean, suddenly I'm a sketch teacher at Highwire. And, you know, I'm hanging out with Mark Kendall. You know? Who's an amazing guy in Atlanta. And and talking to him after his show. And so it's like, I think just belong to... Yeah, find people that are doing what you want to do. And... uh and go spend time with them and, and belong to their organization and, and show up. That's it. Show up. You know, don't sit in the basement or wherever and, and, and expect things to, to happen uh, unless you're going to go and show up. And I mean, you got to learn the craft, learn how to do it. You got to put in the time. I mean, if you want to be a writer, go learn how to do it and then show up on the page, man. I mean, you know, I spent way too, not way too many, a lot of hours this week writing one sketch. You know, well, then I got up in front of class and it killed. But it probably it was a lot of time, so you got to show up and do it every day, you know. Yeah, so show up and 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 learn the craft, and then be open to learning from people who are better than you. I mean, what a what a what a gift, you know. And then I think it's a lot of advice, uh, <laughs> but finding your own voice too is important. Where I mean, I'm in a sketch class right now with so many wonderful, talented solo people who can write and do their own stuff. Mm-hmm. But my sketch is going to be different than yours. You know, you're going to bring something to the table that's different. And so uh, kind of owning who you are. All right, I want to answer that in a more succinct way. All right. Ask me again. Okay. Uh, Will, I like to uh, normally end my show with a culminating question. And that, and that question is, um, if you could give somebody a piece of advice, someone who is aspiring to be in the comedy world or the entertainment world or do blah, 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 repeating what I just said, what is that piece of advice that you would give? Find a group of people that are doing what you want to do or an individual and find excuses to be around them and see if what you can learn. Belong to an organization and show up. Leave the house. Yeah. And if you do that, you can, you can go buy a boat. <laughs> <laughs> then you can get a boat. That's, that's what happens. And live in the old fourth ward like the, I do. The canoe is the goal. That's right. Just a canoe. Just a canoe. Just a canoe. <laughs> I, maybe I should just get a log and some whittling tools. I don't know. 
Well, Will, I want to thank you so much for being on Talking Late Night. I appreciate it. Uh, you're a great improviser, great sketch writer. Um, you're a great person. You're best friends with my cousins, how we met. Yeah. Uh, so it's been great knowing you. I mean, I'm going to continue to know you, but it's been great knowing you in the past and the future and the present as well. I appreciate it. You can check Will out at um, High Wire comedy it's in atlanta georgia so that was my phone i apologize <laughs> i forgot to silence it i even thought to myself i'm gonna silence <laughs> this and i still forgot so be sure to check out will at highwire google highwire look up their amazing sketch improv and stand-up classes and anything you want to add to that will well yeah uh will and alex on funny or die we have a couple of our uh, latest sketches that we've produced up there so if you, if you feel like our videos click funny that'd be awesome Perfect. Check them out at Funny or Die. So thanks so much again, Will. And we will see you next time here on Talking Late Night. <laughs>